Thank you so much, Horace. Hey, can I just see a show of hands of everyone who ran at St. Jude yesterday? How many people here ran the race? All right, we got maybe a few in the house. Yeah, we can put our hands together and say, grateful for you. So if you hear any uh, outbursts this morning, either people got cramps or they got the Holy Spirit one, right? Uh, Casey and I partnered yesterday to run the half marathon. I drove her, dropped her off. She ran the 13.1. But in marriage, we, we do things together. So I was so proud of, of Casey uh, uh, yesterday. And for over 17,000 people who came to run, just a, a great day for the city of Memphis. Years ago, there was a, an article that was written in a journal in which the question was asked, and whom do you trust? And thousands of people responded to this. Thousands responded. And the number one response is that 40% of people said that they trust Walter Cronkite. How many of you even know who that is? A show of hands. All right, some of you have never heard that name before, but I mean, we're talking about one of the greatest journalists, uh, broadcasters. He's a legend. The second most, 26%, was Pope John Paul. And then there were some who, you know, just, I mean, random, I mean, people who received three, six percent. Six percent of people said the person they trust the most is Billy Graham. And three percent of the respondents said the one they trust the most is God. This was written in 1981. So it's not like we're talking about the last decade. And almost every decade is asked the question, like, who do you trust? Who do you put your trust in? I mean, even in the Bible times, it's like every era, like, who are they putting their trust in? And no era has ever knocked this out of the park with who we put our trust in. We trust in a lot of different things other than God. This isn't just an indictment on 1981. Like, every era struggles with this sometimes. So we're in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2 right now. And the birth narrative is we're walking through the season of Advent. And I think even in that season, like, who... Who were people putting their trust in? When it came to a Messiah coming into the world, how were people putting their trust in God? In a different way, I like to think of this is does God trust us? It's not just are we trusting God, but does God trust us? Because some of the ways I want to pray and the way I think about our church is I hope that God trusts the Sycamore View Church, that like God would trust us, that he could wake someone up in the morning who is on, at the end of their rope or struggling with their identity or who they are in God or who they are in life, Uh, that God could wake up an alcoholic or a drug addict and know that if God nudges people to this place, that this is a church, it would heal them and back to life in relationship with God. So who does God trust? So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2. We're in a four-week series right now called Unstable, how the birth of Jesus flips everything upside down. And what I'm doing for a few weeks is I want to talk today about how the role of women in ministry and in life is not something that began to happen in the public ministry of Jesus in the birth narrative of Jesus it is foreshadowing of what is to come and in the next couple of weeks I want to talk about how the poor in the birth narrative of Jesus are welcome to a table like never before I want to talk about how outsiders come to the table like never before and today I want to spend time talking about three women in Luke chapter 1 and 2 now years ago there was a test that was developed to gauge how people are dealing with stress. So it was just, they would list a a statement and then if that is something in your life that is causing stress, you would check yes and you're given points for it. At the end, you add up your points. Anything under 200 means you are functioning from a healthy place in life with not much stress. If you're in between 200 and 300, you are borderline. Anything above 300 is that you are so stressed out, like you're on the verge of nervous breakdown. So... uh, for example, here's, here's how it went. Marriage alone is worth 50 points of stress. 
Now, maybe I don't think ours is 50 points of stress, but marriage is 50 points. Christmas season alone is 12 points. I know this can be so much fun for people, but I know holidays can also cause a lot of stress. Just think of the last two years of your life on some of these. How a change in eating habits is 15 points for stress. Change in number of family get-togethers, 15 points. Change in sleeping habits is 16 points. Change in church activities is 19 points. Change in residence, 20 points. Change in work uh, hours or conditions, 20 points. Trouble with the in-laws, again, this isn't me, all right, we, we're cool with our in-laws, but trouble with in-laws is 29 points. Change in responsibilities at work, 29 points. A large mortgage or loan, 31 points. And to gain a new family member is 39 points. Now, some of you on the screen right there, you're like, you just nailed the last two years of my life, that's it. And that right there that I've showed you on the screen comes out to 295 points, which means a person who is dealing with that amount of stress, they are on the verge of nervous breakdown. Now, here's what was really fun. A few years ago, somebody thought they would take that test, which, by the way, I took it this past week just for fun to see how I'm doing. And I was in the 200 to 300 range, but I wasn't real close to 300, so I think I'm doing okay. But somebody a few years ago thought it would be fun to take the, the life of Mary when she was giving birth to Jesus and work her through this to see how stressed out Mary was. And here's how it went for her. Pregnancy is worth 40 points. Unplanned pregnancy is worth an additional 40 points. <laughs> telling your parents, in the, especially in the first century, telling your parents about an unplanned pregnancy when you are not married is an additional 80 points. Moving in, in with Aunt Elizabeth while she is in her final trimester and you're in your first trimester is worth 45 points. Marriage to Joseph in that season worth 50 points. Traveling on donkey miles to get to Bethlehem while she's in her final trimester of pregnancy, that is worth 35 points. The family argument when she found out Joseph failed to make reservations at the inn <laughs> is worth an additional 35 points. I mean, you can just see how this went down, right? She probably had, she probably gave Joseph the to-do list. Like here, like just reach at Priceline.com, you can do this, right? And, and he didn't get it done. Giving birth is worth 39 points. Changing sleeping habits, 31 points. And guests at the birth, uninvited guests who showed up at the birth is worth 30 points. Maybe you saw this this past week. I saw this on social media. I had to catch it. It says this, Mary, exhausted, having just gotten Jesus to sleep, is approached by a young man who thinks to himself, what this girl needs is a drum solo. <laughs> but if you add up all that, just in the life of Mary, when she gave birth to Jesus, it comes out to 425 points. She was dealing with a lot of stress. And I think it goes to show you this was a, an amazing woman of God, right? So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to work you through, teach you about three women in the birth narrative of Jesus, Elizabeth, Mary, and Anna. And two of those three, Luke is the only one who tells you about them. And I hope in the next few minutes to share a few things about these three women that will educate you, inspire you. I hope grow your appreciation for how Luke tells about the birth narrative of Jesus. And let's start with this woman, Elizabeth. In chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, it says this about her. His wife Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. And both of them were righteous in the sight of God, 
observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. So right there, it lets you know, Elizabeth is part of the tribe of Aaron. So she is, has a long lineage of faithfulness and, and leaders. And it also tells you that because she's barren, she's also connected to some other women in Scripture. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, other women who weren't able to have children until the Lord worked a miracle in their life. So in her life, there was human hopelessness. And at this point in her life, because she's very old, like she's, she's old, old, and she hadn't had a child. At this point in her life, for anything to happen for her is going to be divine intervention. In verse 24 and 25, it says this. After this, after she found out that she was pregnant, after this, uh, Elizabeth became pregnant. After Zechariah uh, had a vision from God, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. For in the first century, for you to be a woman who could not have a child, there was shame that you carried. That people would look at you as a woman who there was punishment upon you, like the wrath of God was on you. So either you have sinned in your life or someone else has sinned, so this could not happen to you. Infertility was not a gift. It was shame that you carried. In verse 41 through 45, what, what happens is Mary then comes to Elizabeth, and it says this, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. The only way we know that this encounter between Mary and Elizabeth happened is that Mary and Elizabeth shared this story with other people and they believed the story. The only reason we have this encounter in which it is the first time in the Gospel of Luke you are told that somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit of God and it's Elizabeth who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And in this same encounter, Elizabeth makes the declaration that a baby inside of Mary is her Lord. Something that it takes somebody who is mature and righteous before God who has an awareness of the movement of God to be able to make a claim like that. In verse 59 and 60 it says this, on the eighth day after their baby had been born, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother, Elizabeth, spoke up and said, no, he's going to be called John. Because back then, either the dad would name the baby, and usually it was a name that went with the family lineage. So they're expecting it to be Zechariah or something that kept the family tradition going, but instead it's Elizabeth who speaks up because Zechariah couldn't talk for nine months. Imagine that. She's pregnant in her old age, and she can't even have a conversation with her husband. Well, some people may listen to that, and you're like, that could be a real gift for her life, right? <laughs> or, or this may be a real challenge for her. But she's the one who speaks up to say, no, this baby's, his name is not going to be Zachariah. We're breaking the family tradition because there's a new move of God, and in this move of God, this baby is going to be named John. Now, my dad, his name is Rick Ross, which, you know, over the last decade has been really funny because there's a, a really famous hip-hop artist named Rick Ross. So my dad at times has showed up to, like, get pizza from a pizza place, and all these people are there waiting on the rapper Rick Ross to be there. And my dad was the fourth. He was Roderick Ross the fourth. 
So when it came time for me to be born, everyone on my dad's side of the family, they just knew what my dad was going to name his son. It was going to name his son Roderick Ross V, that I was going to be Roderick Ross. But my dad growing up in school had so many people make fun of his name that he did not want his son to have to go through the same thing. So he decided he was going to break the family tradition and not name me Roderick Ross V and instead name me Joshua. And he received ridicule from his side of the family for it. The same thing happens with Zechariah and Elizabeth, but it's Elizabeth who speaks up. It's the last time you hear her voice in the Bible. And what she says is, this baby's name's going to be John. And in verse 80, you get this one other little moment, and her name isn't mentioned, but what it says is, John grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until until he appeared publicly to Israel, which even though it doesn't mention her name, I think it's safe to assume that she played a vital role in his development in life. That's Elizabeth. Now, I could preach a sermon about Elizabeth in which I try to make her out to be the victim of this woman who is old and without a child, but Luke doesn't do that in Luke chapter 1. He talks about her being old and barren. But what Luke wants you to know is this is a woman who is older, and even though she hasn't gotten her way in life, this is a woman who is righteous before God. She knows the story of God. She is living with awareness of God. She becomes a major voice in the birth narrative of Jesus. The second woman you see in the birth narrative is Jesus' mother, Mary. In chapter 1, verse 27, it says, In the sixth month of, month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So you're told that Gabriel's going to Nazareth. Now, if you're an angel like Gabriel and you are sent to an assignment in Nazareth, your first response is probably, why not something in Jerusalem or a bigger city? This is a little bitty place. This is like saying, why are you sending me on a mission to Milan? And I'm not, I'm just, I'm not taking shots at Milan. I'm just saying like small towns where there's really nothing going on there. And this is where Gabriel is sent. And in Nazareth is a woman who's never been with a man, and her name is Mary. And you read about this encounter Mary has with an angel. Now, the whole reason that we have this moment with Mary that is talked about in Luke chapter 1 is apparently Mary shared this with other people, and other people believed it, and then Luke wrote it down. So in this engaged in this conversation she has with this angel the angel tells her a baby is going to be born from you and in verse 37 the angel says this for nothing is impossible with God the only reason we have that verse is because at some point Mary shared this encounter with an angel with other people other people believed it they wrote it down and I wonder how often Mary carried that little phrase with her for the rest of her life something she would recite, something she would pray, something she would teach others. Nothing is impossible with God. And it's that verse that calls Mary to respond in verse 38 with, here I am. Like, I'm the Lord's servant, and may your word to me be fulfilled. Like, she's all in. She's ready. In chapter 2, verse 19, it says, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Like, she was making room for all of these things that were happening in her life. In verse 34 and 35, after Jesus had been born, Simeon blessed Joseph and Mary and Jesus, and, and Simeon said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And I wonder how often Mary carried that phrase with her. 
that a sword is going to pierce your own soul. As any parent does, how often do you think Mary prayed for God to protect Jesus? To protect him from suffering, to protect him from pain. And I wonder how often she carried that little phrase of this prophecy that was spoken over, over her. At one, you know, one day, there's going to be a sword that's going to pierce your own soul. Not knowing that that sword that's going to pierce her own soul isn't just her son dying a death, but witnessing her son dying a death of execution on a cross. In verse 40, it says this. The child Jesus grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And even though Mary's name isn't mentioned in verse 40, she played a vital role in Jesus' development in life. Mary was a woman in which in Luke chapter 1 and 2, it is talked about how she is favored by God. She is described as a woman who is thoughtful, obedient, believing in God. She was a worship worshiper. She was worshipful. And Mary and Elizabeth, even though there was a, a distance, a, a, an age gap, they both had to learn to carry shame. Elizabeth carried it for years because she couldn't have a baby. Mary carried it because she's pregnant out of wedlock. And if we could just have a recorder of what conversations were in those three months when Elizabeth and Mary were together as pregnant women, the prayers they prayed, the conversations they had. But Luke lets you know about one other woman too. And her name's Anna. And there are only three verses given to Anna. That's it. You know very little about her. Now, let's just be honest, like if I were to ask you who, who in your childhood, either at school or growing up in your neighborhood, who was like the worst kid in your childhood, there's a 50% chance your answer would either be Bubba or Mark, because we all know Bubba's and Mark's in our childhood, who, who weren't the most well-behaved children. Now, I'm sure there are Bubba's and Mark's in the house today, or maybe you're online watching and you ended up in that other 50%, but have you ever known an Anna in your life who had to go to you know, school detention or go to the principal's office. Like it seems that like every Anna that I've ever known are, are so sweet and kind and they get things done. Like if you want to be a su successful in your life, make sure there's an Anna in your life. And that's how Anna is described in Luke chapter 2, verse 36 through 38. It says this, there's a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow until she was 84. And she never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Let me just stop right there. The first description of Anna isn't as a daughter, and it's not as a wife. The first description of Anna is as a prophet. She's a prophet of God. Prophets didn't go to the temple to spend time in prayer to prophesy to themselves. Prophets spent time in prayer to God so that they could declare the truth of God to other people. The Bible doesn't tell you she's a prophet for a women's ministry. The Bible tells you she's a prophet in the temple of God. That's the first way she's described. And then she's put in the tribe of a northern tribe of Israel. So there's a long lineage of faith in her family. And then you're told that she was married at a young age. She was married only seven years and her husband died. And then she lived for decades as a widow. Either she was a widow for 84 years or she's 84 years old when this story is told. We aren't really sure. Either way, she lived as a widow for years. You would think if she had children, maybe Luke would have told you she had children. So here's a woman, and what we do know is that she found her strength not in another male counterpart, but in service to God. 
that the older she got, the more her hunger for God became. And this made her aware and alert so that in verse 38 it says, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem because she lived with the kind of faith that there was an awareness of God moving around her. That she knew the child of the promise when the child of the promise was in her midst. Now up to this point, there had been other female prophets in the Bible, like Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, Isaiah's wife, for her old age, and she still had a deep passion for God. There are scholars who have counted the number of times in the Gospel of Luke where there are what some call male-female parallel stories. And Luke does this 13 times. Where what Luke will do is he'll tell a story about a man, like Simeon, and then he follows that up with a story about a woman, like Anna. Thirteen different times you have these male-female counterpart stories. And I don't bring that up to try to make an argument that Luke is trying to convince everybody to be egalitarian. But I don't think this is an accident. I think Luke is trying to let people know that when it comes to the kingdom of God coming into this world in its fullness, men and women have a seat at the table of God. So you have three women. Elizabeth, who is old and without a child. And just imagine the shame she had to carry, especially in that culture. Mary, who's pregnant, out of wedlock. Imagine the shame she had to carry. And then you have Anna, who's a widow, most likely without children. And I'm sure people for years begged her to get married. Yet she devoted herself to the temple of God, to prayer and to worship and to fasting. You have three women who most people would think did not have a lot to offer to the world. But here's a team God picked to help carry, in a way literally carry, salvation into the world. So did God just randomly choose those three women? Because I know God randomly chooses people for service sometimes. Or could I convince you that it was the faithfulness of those three women that made them candidates for God to use to carry the good news of Jesus into the world? That for Elizabeth and Mary and Anna... They kept choosing faithfulness to God over their circumstances that prepared them to be open to the movement of God. So I know if you've been at this church for a few years, you've heard me tell stories about uh, my sister who passed away back in 2010. Just in three weeks, she got sick, went to the hospital, never came out of the hospital. So that happened in 2010. Jenny got married in 1998, and she had a dream of having a large family. She wanted a bunch of babies. And it scared her soon-to-be husband to death, right? Stressed him out. Because he didn't want all the babies that Jenny wanted, but they went on with the marriage. And then they're both trying to finish school in their first year of marriage, and Jenny gets pregnant. They weren't even trying. She gets pregnant in 1999, has a baby in 2000. And then after that, she's ready to have her large family. And Jenny began to struggle with secondary infertility. So until the day she dies, she went a decade where she wanted more children, and it just wasn't happening. They ran tests, poured money into all kind of uh, medicine, thought about adoption for 10 years. There were no other kids. 
And this is something that Jenny wrestled with to the day she died. And I remember we prayed over her early on in her secondary infertility. One day our family, we laid hands on her, we prayed. After that, I pulled our family together without Jenny there, and I said, hey, here's what I want to ask everybody to do. Can we all think of one thing we're going to fast from? Either until Jenny has a baby, or Jenny is at peace with where she is in life. So I chose in that moment, that day I chose to give up Dr. Peppers until God either gave Jenny a baby or Jenny was at peace with her situation in her, or where she was in life. And I thought that God was going to be so impressed with my sacrifice. Because if you knew how many Dr. Peppers I was drinking in my early 20s, I, and, and I thought the angels would be so impressed with this because they're probably drinking Dr. Pepper right now. And I thought they would be looking at God thinking, like, God, if this was Sprite or Coke or Pepsi, you would probably ignore it. But this guy's giving up Dr. Pepper. Like, you've got to grant this request. And I thought the Lord would be so impressed. Right? Years went by. When Jenny died in February of 2010, uh, we left at 8 p.m. to make a drive all the way to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Our kids were two and a half, and Noah was a newborn, and Jim and Stacy Hinkle put together snack bags for us for the late night drive, and in that snack bag was one can of a Dr. Pepper, and I remember Jenny, or Casey, holding it up and saying, Jenny's at peace now, and she popped it open, and I had my first taste of Dr. Pepper in almost a decade. Now, two months before Jenny died, over Christmas, we traveled to be with our family, and Jenny asked if she could host a meal at her house, not my parents' house. She wanted to cook for our family, and she wanted to sit us down, and she wanted to walk us through her spiritual journey and where she was with God. So we had this little worship experience in a living room, and then Jenny started to work us through Scripture of the ways God had been tending to her heart with her secondary infertility. And at the end of that, she made this statement that we ended up using in her funeral. I've written about it in books before. And here's what Jenny said. She said, I don't want people walking by my casket saying, look, there's that poor infertile woman. I want them to say, look, there is a woman who continued to serve the Lord even when she didn't get her way. And that's how she lived for the rest of her life. So here are three things I want to give you as we move to the table this morning. As we move to a place of commitment, recommitment, surrender, and resurrender, three things I want to give you. Something I want you to take from what we learned from Elizabeth, from Mary, and from Anna. And here they are. Number one, these women did not let their circumstances keep them from God's story. They did not let them circ their circumstances turn them into bitter people with hard hearts who weren't open to God. For Elizabeth to live that many years of her life as a barren woman, yet still to be described as righteous and blameless and aware of what God was doing around her. She didn't let her circumstances define her. Anna lived years of her life as a widow and chose to dedicate herself to service in the temple and service to the people of God. Number two is their stories are not told by Luke in Luke for pity or sympathy, but because of worth that they found in God. In other words, I don't think the right way for me to preach Luke in one about these three women is that God chooses the underdogs and uses the underdogs for God's story. I think there's a sermon there. I just don't think the three women are the ones you use to tell that story. 
I think God used these three women because of their faithfulness to God. They had opened themselves to the Lord to be used by God for purposes such as this. And number three is that women have a permanent place at the table of Jesus. And it's something that does not begin in the public ministry of Jesus. It's in the birth. It's in the foreshadowing. Now here's the deal for anybody who's ever been on the outside or close to the margins. And whether this is because of gender or race or ethnicity, anyone who's ever been close to the margins, you know how hard it is for you to fight your way to be at a table where your voice is heard. And you also know once you get to a table how hard you have to work to keep your place at the table. And for Jesus, when it comes to the table, it's not a one-time invitation to let people come to the table and then maybe another invitation will go out, maybe it won't. For Jesus, it is a permanent place at the table. So I wonder what it was like for Mary to witness the death of her own son. And not just the death of her own son, an execution. And that phrase she had probably carried with her for over 30 years, of this sword will pierce your own soul too. And though Luke tells you that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at the cross witnessing the death of Jesus. It's not the last time Luke tells you about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's also in Acts chapter 1. She's with the church in a room praying. And even though we're not told if she's in the church with, the, in, with these people, with the church praying, there's a good chance Mary witnessed Pentecost and the, the, the fire of the Holy Spirit that came upon people. And there's a good chance Mary multiple times met with the church and took the bread and the cup, which was the sword that appears her own soul, the own death of her son. And now knowing that that sword that pierced her soul is also the gift that is bringing salvation to the entire world. So let me speak to a couple of groups of people real quick. For those of you in the room or maybe online today, for women who are in this moment right now, who are struggling with forms of infertility or barrenness or miscarriages, I will never know how you feel. I'll never know. I just want you to know today that your worth is found in God and you are a gift to this world and you are not alone. And I hope that something maybe that you read or that you've heard me talk about with Elizabeth or with Anna gives you encouragement just to put that next foot in front of the other in life. And let me speak to those listening right now who have allowed circumstances in your life to keep you from faithfulness to God and encourage you and charge you to begin making a shift in your heart and in your thinking even right now as we come to the table. That if you are allowing circumstances to keep you from faithfulness to God, it is something that can slowly turn you into somebody you never want to become. And I want to save you from getting 10, 20, 30 years down the road where you realize that your heart is hard and you have lost compassion and you're a bitter person because years before you allowed circumstances to keep you from faithfulness to God. So let there be a shift that begins happening in you today. And if there's anyone in this room or online listening right now and you want to know 
Like, what does it take for you to be at the table, for you to have that permanent seat at the table? It is not based on your work or your effort or what you can do. It is based on what Jesus has done for you. That Jesus has given his life and has extended an invitation for you to have a permanent place at the table. So will you step to the table, be baptized into Christ, confess his name, join the family. And right now, I want to invite everyone to bow our heads and close our eyes as we give thanks. And today, God, I just ask that you will tend to us in this moment for you to teach us in this moment. May our hearts and eyes be open to you and through the bread and the cup, minister to us, speak to us. Give us worth in this moment. Speak purpose over us. I pray that circumstances that are keeping us from understanding you or wanting to be faithful to you, that they will just be set right today. Set our minds right in this moment, our hearts right in this moment. We give thanks to you, and God, we ask for you to tend to us in this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.